We are very glad to uh, see that so many people have turned out to welcome Tony Hopkins back to the British Studies Seminar. Uh, and we have a lot of refugees from the History Department that we haven't seen uh, recently, and we're very glad to see them as well. Uh, I should mention uh, that a couple of weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal called me up and asked me whether I would review uh, Tony's book. Uh, but they said, we have a question for you. Uh, we know that he's an old friend and a colleague. Would you be, favor would you be willing to give it an unfavorable review? And I <laughs> said, no problem. <laughs> so there are several jokes in this, uh, more or less at Tony's expense, but he's a good sport. Surprise. <laughs> uh, there are several parables, but all that I'll mention here is that uh, uh, I said right away uh, that I thought this would be a better and more manageable book at half the length. Uh, and then I retracted and said that uh, for Tony's purposes, uh, it had to be a book uh, this size. Uh, I won't say any more about this, uh, but except that the central chapters are really a magnificent a historical account of the dependencies of the United States in the Pacific uh, and the Caribbean. No one has ever done this before, and it's to Tony's uh, great credit uh, that he's managed to uh, uh, carry on with this great historical work. Uh, so I concluded that this is a uh, book of prodigious knowledge condensed into only seven, 970 pages. <laughs> Tony. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Roger. I'd like to begin by saying what a splendid and generous start that was. But in view of the criticisms, I can see this is going to be an uncomfortable and possibly unpleasant occasion. I'm relying on those of you who have been paid to attend this session uh, uh, to do your duty, I think, is the phrase. I'm sorry about the weight of the book and the implied criticism. There isn't a word that is superfluous. Um, but I should take this opportunity to say that Princeton University Press are going to issue a disclaimer uh, because already there have been uh, legal action threatened by those, uh, by, on behalf of uh, those people who bought the book and have attempted to lift it with one hand. Uh, a new disease known as instant carpal tunnel syndrome has been spotted from New York down to here. And I would advise you in that case either to use both hands or better still buy several copies so you don't have the labor of moving around. Have one in every location. Uh, and let me say that this is a very subtle book tour that you may not have gathered so far. Uh, but I must uh, return to my text if we are to keep within the three hours that I've been allocated. <laughs> and so I should say, in all seriously, it's, it is a very great pleasure to come back from what it may well be my fourth and possibly final. No, no, no. <laughs> we rehearsed this for heaven's sakes. Get the timing right. 
final appearance. The others have been blotted from my mind, not by Sherry, but by the various disasters that have occurred in the course of a talks of this kind, where one is nearly always stretched beyond limit. And on this occasion, I have gone beyond all provinces and frontiers and will pay the price. But it is a pleasure to be back uh, to meet Roger and Dagmar again, to be in this room which has hosted so many distinguished speakers. And I am, I understand, though Roger didn't put it like this, a warm-up man for a very big name who'll be coming to you next week. And uh, I am honoured to precede Karl Rove, uh, one of the great historians of the 1890s. I mean, <laughs> Uh, and now, today, uh, I have set myself, as I said, an absurd task, uh, which you will see from the book. Every sentence I'm uttering now is amplified in the book without a redundant word. What I want to do is to have a scamper through several centuries of US and Euro history in order to try to convey to you as crudely as possible, and, and crudity and overgeneralization are some of the hallmarks of my specialization over many years, uh, what the purpose and the argument of the book are. You will not have any definitions, you'll not have much evidence, and uh, I apologize for that only in, with qualification because, as I say, it would take far too long and it's one reason why I've written the book. So what I've done is to produce a synthesis which offers an approach to US international history that I hope, since novelty escapes us all, is at least fresh. <laughs> and the outcome of this basically is to try to show that the United States has been part of an imperial system over the past three centuries. I will say I'm using the word imperial here to refer to a set of characteristics. It's not an ideological term as I'm using it at least today. This argument has three building blocks. Globalization is the first one. Oh, it's boring, I know, because everyone is into it. And I remember, and some of my ex-students here will remember about 2006 when I was talking to them about the next phase that's coming. Where is history going? I said, well, for once I know where it's going. Everyone's going to be talking about globalization, and they are. And there's even a sense in which this subject might be played out because it's so familiar to us. It's mandatory in books, titles of articles and dissertations. However, there is an oddity, there's a strange gap which we historians are responsible for because there is as yet no developed historiographical argument about whether globalization was basically one thing that got bigger with stops and starts or whether it can be divided into different phases or categories and what basis of those might be. And I'm taking the second view and I will present to you uh, three phases which will cover these centuries. The second building block is the notion of a dialectic. That is to say, one phase leads to another through the processes of expansion, and you might say even the success of one phase, which throws up forces which will transmute or even overturn, uh, uh, lead to a new phase. And that goes right through uh, to the present. And the third building block is that the prime agents of this process of globalization in the past few centuries have been empires. Not the only agent, many others of course, but the prime agents. 
So what I'm trying to do then is to draw the US into the mainstream of at least Western history. I know this could be extended, but I need four or five hours to include India and China and so on. But that is a start. And the first phase is that of what I call proto-globalization, which I'm using the label simply to um, describe a phase of Euro history which is familiar to you, a phase uh, in which the economies were agricultural, uh, with commerce, with dynastic states. And this, of course, is a, a characteristic that runs over many centuries, but which in the 17th and 18th century reached a high point, not a terminal point, but a high point in the military fiscal states, as specialists call them, that came into being and reached something of an apogee in the late 18th century. And indeed, these military fiscal states were brought down, though not counted out, uh, at the end of the century as a result of a major fiscal crisis which affected all of them. Uh, Montesquieu, who saw many things, saw this in 1748, even before the Seven Years' War. I give myself time just to cite this, because I made the mistake of going to an archive, you see, and I, I, it's the only quote I've got. And you, just one more, but I might as well give it to you. A new distemper has spread itself over Europe, infecting our princes and inducing them to keep up an exorbitant number of troops. It has its redoublings and of necessity becomes contagious. For as soon as one prince augments his forces, the rest, of course, do the same, so that nothing is gained thereby but the public ruin. Now, this fiscal crisis had a very well-known political dimension to it in terms of the rise of reformist and radical movements seeking greater transparency, seeking greater accountability across Europe, uh, and at times seeking to express themselves uh, outside the Constitution. And the American Revolution, he scampered on in the last quarter of the 19th century, as you well know, can be seen, I think, as an offshoot of this central Euro crisis. The, the mainland colonies being, in a manner of speaking, outer provinces, everything you see taking place in UK uh, with regard to the fortune of the military fiscal state, the financial crisis, the political upheaval, is also manifested, of course, in the United States, but not solely in the United States, as I've tried to point out. By the last quarter of the century, Britain's military fiscal state had extended to the mainland colonies and the West Indies, as we very well know, but it had reached the limits of its ability to control the mainland for two reasons technological difficulties which weren't overcome for another hundred years and of course because the mainland colonies themselves had become more powerful. Population had increased and as we know from the work of Geoffrey Williamson, Comlos and others, living standards had risen too. So there was the power, the heft, to respond, if not aggressively, at least uh, sternly, uh, to uh, uh, depredations or other unwelcome policies uh, by the imperial centre. And again, as is well known, I mustn't keep on saying that because until we lock the door, you can still access uh, exit. But as also is well known, uh, the 
Fiscal crisis hit particularly after 1763 with the end of the Seven Years' War. And the solution there was to shift the burden of taxation to the colonies. It was really one of the first of several episodes that the British became quite adept at applying to the colonies in 1848 and actually after 1945. If one choice is to tax people at home who are already existing, it seems a more pleasing option to those in power to try and do the same thing a long way away where retaliation might be more difficult or less, less well felt. What we have gained in recent work, and here I must mention the work of James Vaughan, if I don't know whether he's here or not, is an insight into the politics of imperial policy at the crucial moment of the 1760s. And without this work, which James very kindly allowed me to have in dis dissertation form, I would not have the confidence to make the uh, calcul political calculations that I have made and the historical conclusions and this actually leads me much beyond the 1760s and provides a basis for my understanding of the first half of the 19th century. We now know that the politics uh, of the 1760s saw, saw a division between roughly uh, a Pittite group of Whigs and reformist Whigs, I should say, and on the other hand, uh, Grenville, Butte, North, who wanted to have an extractive empire. Here was the battle, and if you think of those things, the choice between extracting from an empire and developing trade to increase revenues that way, you have in the 1760s a precursor of the kinds of development that would have come up in India in the 19th century and elsewhere in the colonies of the 20th century. So much begins, as I have belatedly come to realize, uh, in the 18th century. And this battle was carried out. The conservative extractive wing of politics won. And so they went first to India. Here is the first global indication of this argument, attempting to gain from advancing into India the revenues of the Nawab and other ways to raise revenues there in order to solve the problem. And that solution uh, had its limits. The government, British government had to step in and take over to a degree the East India Company. The costs of doing that, of acquiring the revenues, uh, were ex exceeded the benefits that came from it. It was in those global circumstances that Britain turned to the, United, the mainland colonies with all of the consequences that you know. Uh, before you conclude with a yawn that you know all this, I just want to say, in concluding, I have several conclusions, by the way, so don't get too excited. Uh, the last count, there are probably in double figures, so you can tick off one. It's true. What I'm trying to do is to revive uh, the economic theme. I'm not going to say economic interpretation. It's not total. The economic theme in the understanding of the big moves which led to the revolution. If you recall, those of you who know this inside out, uh, that the intellectual uh, historians have really captured the field for a long time. So I'm trying to go back to that. But this is an argument of much more than about taxation and representation, which used to be conceived within one set of colonies. This is an argument that goes to the base of the power structure in Europe in the second half of the 18th century. When independence came, he said hurriedly, uh, in 1783, uh, something very odd happens. 
It's odd, but it's understandable. Here's the understandable bit. In 1783, US historians begin to write the national saga, let me put it that way. I don't use that in a pejorative way. All right, national history. This is not only understandable, it's actually very conventional. Every independent country from Nigeria to New Zealand does exactly the same thing. Off with the imperial yoke, let's talk about the domestic story. And that basically is still the story of the 19th century. And in fact, you could push that on into at least the First World War period. Uh, as I said, I'm speaking grossly, but you get the sense of this. So you have this understandable uh, story, understandable if you are familiar with what happens to studies of decolonization in other parts of the world. It's also odd because my argument here is that the continuities far outweigh uh, the elements of change. And it's odd because, especially in settler colonies, the elements of continuity, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, etc., are always very pronounced. So we should at least pause before assuming that very many things change in 1783. They do eventually, uh, but not at this time, I think. And if you, if you look at the main headings of the constituents of history during that period, you can see that you can recast them a little bit. <laughs> So instead of a struggling through from the Jeffersonian revolution to the era of good feelings to the Jacksonians and then the second party system and its breakdowns, so all of which is highly relevant, and I am actually being very dismissive of very serious arguments, you can actually just reconceptualize the political debates of the time as essentially not about the acquisition of liberty and democracy, but about the acquisition or creation of viability and development. And if you look at it that way, you can see the arguments about what elements of the military fiscal state to incorporate and whether it is possible to have an agrarian uh, set of republics, on the other hand, which will meet the needs of viability and development. Those are the main themes of that period. Uh, actually, Frederick List whose famous uh, book, The National System, was published in 1841 and became a Bible uh, for uh, countries that were becoming independent later and which were also struggling with how to get economic development in a situation of continuing colonial subordination. Frederick List actually was in the United States in the 1820s, as many of you will know, and it was a formative experience for him. And if you look not only at the ideas of what kind of state there should be, which were very much the ideas that were talked about in Britain in the 1770s and 80s in those different circumstances. If you look at the economy of the time, what do you see? Bentham had got it right in 1793, as early as that, when he said, with reference to the discussion about what was going to change with the independence of the United States, he said, people have said that it's all going to be a disaster, we're going to lose trade and so on and so on. And in 1793 he said, has it happened? No, he said, our trade is much bigger now than it was before. And if you fast forward a bit to the 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s with the expansion of cotton, you can see that that theme, he got it right. Uh, and that uh, trade expanded. We know that finance expanded. What a rapid turnaround. Bearings helping to finance the Louisiana Purchase in 1802. 
and uh, the and subsequently going on to fund the railways, the state building activities of states as well as of the federal government, uh, just as Bearings were doing in the Latin American Republic. So that uh, influence was predominant. And in terms of culture, uh, scholars of decolonization make play of the phrase counterculture, by which they mean to achieve cultural independence all ex-colonial states have got to try to distance themselves from the, the, the culture of the home country, especially, of course, in the case of settlers who come from that, if they can't say in the United States, as the Yorubakas say, we came from a hole in the ground. The origins, of course, were very tangible and ever-present. So the problem of creating a counterculture uh, was also one that was seen by uh, contemporaries. Emerson's famous 1837 lecture on the Declaration of Literary Independence is notable as an aspiration and it aroused uh, much comment uh, because it had not been achieved. And uh, if you look at uh, Fenimore Cooper and uh, Longfellow, uh, even though Whitman was very unfair when he dismissed Longfellow as somebody, a kind of feudal residue, uh, nevertheless, you can see that uh, these are authors who are writing in a kind of Walter Scottish way and importing much more from Britain than would be the case later on. Now, as the national story is being written by a new set of authors, because no, nobody goes beyond 1812 or 1815 if you're starting in the mainland colonies, and many people finish up exhausted in 1783, and one can understand it. So you get, it not, you get the insular story, that is to say, the mainland story, being told by a new set of authors. Now, you might think that we his, imperial historians, being highly competitive would object to this, but of course we don't because we're getting over the defeat at Yorktown. It's very tough to face, but also, of course, fortuitously or not, imperial historians have got so much on their hands, they've got to occupy India. Uh, there's Australia to be settled, then there's the French wars, we're getting Singapore and Cape Town, you know, there's too much going on. So you have this parting of the ways, but the reality is that these political, economic and cultural ties remained not just important, they became even more important. How that's the oddity that the Atlantic complex with historians of the 18th century have done so much uh, to reveal to us this subtle network of connections across the place. It's as if it had disappeared, and it has disappeared, but there's no evidence for why it should have disappeared. On the contrary, it should have greater emphasis at this time in the books. Britain was better off without the colonies than with them. I mustn't give you too many quotes because of time, but in case you think that this is the burblings of an ancient amateur in your field, you're right. But um, selective quotations may help. Here's Henry Clay in 1820. Britain's aim, he said, was to maintain the United States as, quote, independent colonies of Britain, politically free, commercially slaves. And 12 years later, he still thought the United States had not yet broken free from the British colonial system. 
Henry Carey, writing later, foremost economist, of course, thought that the free trade policy of the southern states and, and then of Britain in 1846 would lead substantially, quote, to the recolonization of these states under the commercial dominion of Great Britain. And there are many quotes of this, part, of, on this, uh, of this kind. And you see, if you look at it like that, the United States during this period has a new distinctiveness which is of immense importance for historians who are trying to deal with decolonization because the United States was the first major ex-colonial state, followed by the republics of Latin America, of course, to grapple with these problems. And yet we've missed it. All the work done on so-called third world countries in the 20th century and the ex-colonial states dilemmas, it should begin with the study of the US in the first half of the 19th century. One more point about this period you'll be glad to know. You may feel that the Euro side of this story has been missing a bit, but it isn't because as the United States can be conceived in its politics as having increasingly a struggle between, forgive the crudity, conservatives and progressives, especially from the 30s with the rise of the anti-slavery movement, the temperance movement, etc., etc. This is paralleled in Europe after 1815 by a great struggle between conservatives and progressives. Was the military fiscal state to be reinstalled? The dynasties going with it. Victor Hugo was quite clear in 1815. He said, Waterloo is a real counter-revolution. And Byron vilified Wellington for the same purpose. They saw it as setting back the cause of reform and putting in these monarchs and other dynasties at the same time. And there is another parallel because Europe too was decolonizing. Doesn't that sound odd? But it's true. We don't think of this, nor do the European specialists uh, very largely. After 1815, the states that had been trampled on by Napoleon were trying to work out how they were going to become viable and have some development. It led, of course, later uh, to the unification of Germany and to the unification of Italy. So there's a decolonization story which is untold in Europe too. The War of Independence, William Seward said, writing in 1853, was the first act in the great drama of decolonization on this continent. And I think that's the first time I know of that phrase decolonization uh, being used in this context. I would very much like to be, have that improved on. In fact, decolonisation was invented in the 1830s by the French. So uh, it may be a little earlier than that, but I think it's very telling that he actually saw the evolution of the state since 1783 in those terms. And now my second phase. I haven't offered you another finally let. I'll, I'll try and put one in in a minute for you. The second phase, again, speaking with all the subtlety that has marked my words so far, the second phase I'm calling with uh, what even I will have to say is leaden originality, modern globalization from 1850 to 1950. There, there is, there is a, a basis to this. Uh, 
modernité, the phrase, is attributed to Baudelaire, writing at exactly this time. And of course, he had one view of what modernity was. And Walt Whitman, in his poetry, had a very spacious view of what the modern was going to be. So contemporaries were thinking like this in various dimensions. And I'm using the phrase uh, simply to put together many things that are familiar to everybody. Standing behind the things that we read about in the books is this momentous shift from land to industry. Town and country had been struggling for centuries, but from 1850 through to a point in the 20th century, 1914 sees many of them hammered into the ground, the military fiscal state with its landed political base and its landed political economy uh, was giving way to a new form of state. And modern globalization consists of two things essentially, the creation of nation states and the creation of power-driven machinery as opposed to handicrafts. And what you have in Europe during this time is this process getting underway. I know Britain was a bit in advance, but third, uh, second quarter of the 19th century, little Belgium was extraordinarily an outlier, which started industrializing about the same time, but very small country, of course. But most countries in, in the West began their process of nation building and industrialization after 1850. Now, uh, the US is more or less excluded from this wider story. You look at the Oxford history of the United States. I know it's of the United States and their wonderful books. Uh, the last one, Roger, I'm glad you didn't follow through on your rather cruel criticism of the length of my book. But the last volume in the Oxford history of the United States has, uh, a, a, is as long as mine, and it covers 30 years. <laughs> I rest my case. Uh, so, but most of those volumes and many others in, in a splendid series with wonderful scholarship do not, as they might say, reach out to look further afield. So I'm emphasizing that the US is excluded in the treatment of most studies from this big process that I have referred to. And yet, of course, as you know, this is the substance of what's going on after 1865. The 1860s uh, are going, I think, must be counted to be an unprecedented decade. The formation of Germany, the form 1860 to 70, the formation of Germany 1870 71, the formation of Italy 1860 to 70, the reforms in the Austro Hungarian Empire, the reforms in France after the defeat at Sedan in uh, 1870, even um, and Meiji Japan and so on, 1868, and even the laggardy British had to go as far as having a real reform as opposed to 1832 in 1867 when they really did significantly widen the franchise. And as one uh, cynical conservative politician said somewhat bitterly, what are we going to do? We must educate our masters. In other words, people were in the, the more people were in the political arena and they had to start thinking about what to do to maintain a, some form of elite control. So what was going on uh, after 1865 in the States in the deliberate creation, think of Native American policy and so on, the deliberate creation of a nation state 
parallels and also fits the chronology of what is going on in Europe. In industry too, as I mentioned, Germany, France, the Netherlands, the United States after 1850. And you have this um, cascade, a continuum, because this transition from proto-globalization to modern globalization, of course, was not just taking place a deed of the night. It was something that was stretched out over generations. And that gives you a clue to the differential state of the formation of both nation states and of their industrializing process. And that in turn, though I won't go into it, uh, gives you an angle on attributing motives uh, to imperialism in the late 19th century, some being economic, some being politically political. And this is where in the United States the real market revolution takes place. It's not the one in the books, I think, in the first half of the century. It's after 1850 that you get these major structural change. And of course, these changes integrated the advanced economies in the cyclical movements of international trade, which affected the late 19th century in particular in, many, in adverse ways. With these changes called forth new social forces, towns, an urban work, working force, the agricultural controls of, of the landowners was, was weakened by the increasing visibility of the power of, of states. And so there was a real test for the emerging elites of the late 19th century, poised between the land and some form of modern man, educated, perhaps making his money in business or the professions and so on. And you see this across Europe. And when an economic crisis struck, as we know it did in the United States in the 80s and 90s, you get these series of, uh, of riots. You've got the Haymarket riot. You've got the Pullman strike, many others. You have the railway unions being formed. You also have the first Socialist Party. It's oh, boring. It's exactly the same as what's going on in Europe, almost to the letter, almost to the date. And the reaction of elites in Europe was to try to come together because they saw two things. Firstly, they didn't want to go back to, um, couldn't go back to a pre-modern era. Secondly, they recognized that the framework of the polity was being altered. It was being pushed out, it was being pushed down. It was under threat from disruptive forces which industrialization itself had thrown up. This is a time when uh, the great thinkers like, uh, well, just after the turn of the century, Pareto, Mosca, Robert Michel, they're all thinking about elites and what is the basis of political power. Uh, and this is another indication that this is not just a post, uh, a, re a retrospective uh, um, uh, view of the past, but it actually existed. So basically, what all of them did, and you have these alliances in Europe, which are known in shorthand as the alliance of um, rye and iron in Germany, the alliance of wheat and iron in France, and the role in the case of France of the, of the Catholic Church, this sort of secular and spiritual uh, interests coming together to try and formulate a national policy that would hold uh, physiparious elements within the polity and out of that. So this, this movement of the broadly 
quasi-liberal conservative elites throughout uh, the late 19th century was an attempt to save the emerging capitalism from its own excesses. And as you know, when the dust settled after 1900, what happened was that the survivors, because they came through, turned to some form of amelioration, recognizing that the new modern state had to shift from a warfare state of the military fiscal state to becoming a welfare state. So you have Bismarckian reforms, Giolitti in Italy, Lloyd George in Britain, and you have the progressives in the United States looking for and Roosevelt's attack on the trusts and so on, looking for a more, I won't say a kinder capitalism, but a capitalism with a bolt-on ameliorative uh, element. Now, imperialism can be thought of from this perspective as a form of compulsory globalization. There were many uh, reactions to these crises that I've referred to, and most of them were domestic, but imperialism uh, was this, uh, a, a response to these problems, which, as I said earlier, drew upon different motives in different countries. And having this sense of uneven development through the late 19th century, you can see that, say, the British, who were heavily dependent on foreign trade and finance, had predominantly economic motives. And then you turn at the other end of the continuum uh, to Italy, which had very little external trade and finance connections. And there the, the rather puny imperialism in North Africa and elsewhere was an attempt to build the nation first and then hope that economic development would follow. Between 1880 and 1914, everything that was not more or less already colonized was brought under European control. So that there's a big argument that the Latin American republics and China were in fact in some way semi-colonies. By 1914, even the penguins of Antarctica had been brought under international supervision. <laughs> so there wasn't much left. And this was exactly the time in 1898, as you know, with the war with Spain, the United States war with Spain, when the United States finished up with an odd empire in the sense that much of it was inherited, and that's very rare, uh, or consisting largely of, Puerto, uh, of Philippines and Hawaii in the Pacific and of uh, Puerto Rico, and I have included Cuba as the best example of a protectorate in the Caribbean. So again, what you have is the timing of the acquisition of the empire of the United States uh, is identical with that of the big push to imperialism elsewhere by the European powers. And the run of motives, I won't go into it here, I would love to, by the way, but uh, I won't go into it. The run of motives can be identified by the same procedure. I won't go into it because uh, having decided that, uh, he said going into it, uh, that, <laughs> that the old Lefebvre argument about the search for markets simply wouldn't work, I then had a brilliant idea uh, which was of looking at the return trade, that is the export of sugar to the United States, which is much more important. It's not a search for markets. What market is there in Puerto Rico and Cuba, you know, war-torn and all the rest of it, and poverty-stricken? But what about the sugar, which was a major import into the United States, contributed hugely to the federal revenues? That looked much more promising. Six months later, I worked out that the key figure in this uh, 
Henry Havemeyer, Havemeyer, who ran the Sugar Trust from 1887 and was a huge contributor to Republican and Democratic parties in 1890, whenever it was, and uh, a, the biggest single supplier to the next election, I can't subtract four, from 1896, okay? So, uh, and he was, this, he was very influential, right, it's not markets, it's sugar. You've got it, Hopkins, a star at last. Unfortunately, it doesn't work out because uh, Atkins, I'm sorry, this is the only bit of detail I'll give you, just uh, showing off, so to speak. Atkins, who was Hevmeyer's agent in Cuba, said, back off. We're doing all right here. He said, the Spain will give Cuba autonomy. We can work with that. You don't have to take any action. And he was wrong, but Hevmeyer believed him. And then the other thing that happened, life is so hard for these capitalists, you know. I, you can't, your heart bleeds. The other thing that happened was that sugar beet began to be developed in the Midwest right at this time, 1897-98. And of course the sugar beet people didn't want free entry to, sh to raw sugar from abroad, which would have suited Havmeyer. And of course the swing states were politically very sensitive, naturally in the Midwest and so on. So he was stymied for that. So that was six months gone. Anyway, I thought I'd, I'd share my pain with you. By 1900, it, of course, the United States had achieved effective independence. Politically, it's quite clear. Economically, the US was a manufacturing power penetrating British markets. Wall Street and the City of London cooperated in the various crises to bail one another out. And of course, if we turn to culture, you can see that you've got a different set of people coming to the fore in the late 19th century. The vernacular voices of Walt Whitman, of Mark Twain, and one of my favorites, Emily Dickinson, uh, become very prominent. This is a different world. It's a world that is homegrown rather than imported. William Stead, a noted British commentator in 1904, said, the old, almost pathetic humility with which American writers listened to the criticisms of Europe has disappeared. And all of this was celebrated by the new flag, the uh, 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 Pledge of Allegiance, Veterans Associations. And here is my last quotation. And that is uh, from um, Woodrow Wilson uh, speaking at the commemoration of the 121st anniversary of the Battle of Trenton in 1901. No war ever transformed us quite as the war with Spain transforms. It goes on like that for a bit. And then it says... That little confederation has now massed and organized its energies. A confederation is transformed into a nation. I'll leave you with a Gallic rhetorical question. When I say leave you, I've still got a little more to say. But a Gallic rhetorical question. Could this have been said before 1898? And if so, at what date? How far back could you push a statement like that? A confederation is transformed into a nation. Now I'm coming. This is my second finally, and there's only one more, all right? My second finally is that we're still with this modern uh, state, and something very odd happens, which it complements the elimination of Anglo-American relations between 1783 and 1861. The insular empire I've mentioned 
acquired with such enthusiasm and banging of drums and hymns and so on being written and popular songs and so on, it disappears. As Roger said, although I will just underline it, uh, the last book written on ruling the empire in the 20th century was published in 1962 by a fine scholar. I'm very happy to uh, give him as much possible credit as I can. Those were the days when titles were simple, sentences were short, and authors did not have to claim uh, more about themselves than was warranted. You see, I too have a sense of looking back to a golden age which didn't exist. So the oddity is that there's nothing there except, of course, wonderful research that has come forward in the last 20 years or so on the indigenous history of individual islands, but this is really captures an island, but very rarely are the cross-references. Putting it broadly, the people working on the Caribbean very rarely look at the Pacific and vice versa. And then Hawaii is a bit an oddity because it wasn't in the Spanish empire, so you know the, the Spanish guys are not particularly interested in it. So what I've tried to do, and it's very simple, is to put this together. And if we look at that very quickly, we can see that it would be very easy to dismiss this island. A few islands, you know, how many people? Well, there were 25 million people in 1940. That's sizable, but it's still small in relation to Britain and France. Does it matter? Is it important? Well, I think you can treat this empire as being a microcosm of the big empires. Size is not the only consideration. This empire had all the characteristics that the much bigger empires also displayed. It had variety. It, it was an empire of settlers. It was an empire of concessions. It was an empire of smallholders. The three big categories that cover the British and French empires. It was constitutionally diverse. Uh, imperial overlords have this gradation of obscure terms to try to obfuscate the real relationships between the centre and the various peripheries, you know, dominions, condominiums, and things like protectorates and so on. You've got incorporated and unincorporated. All of that is present too. The administrative techniques employed Indirect rule, direct rule, assimilation, association, all of these things are found in the, in the uh, American empire. And of course the ideology of rule, the concept of white supremacy justifying a civilizing mission to uplift the fallen or those who had never risen. And the colonial economy, identical raw materials, notably sugar, but a bucker and a few other things, coming in exchange for manufactured goods. And finally and tellingly, I think, the trajectory of this empire was just the same as that of the British and the French empires. 1900 to the First World War, a phase of occupation. There's something of a boom in pro produce prices, which actually assisted the, uh, the rulers, and in the case of uh, the United States, this was a first phase, actually a last phase, of enthusiasm for empire. First World War was a test for these empires across the world. 1920s, we're not going to let them shake us off. We'll get back to business as normal. Then the 1930s came riots, objections, protests across all of these empires, including the United States. 
And finally, of course, oh, that's my second finally. I've got one more left. Finally, of course, after World War II, I anticipate myself a little bit here. You'll see that the decolonizing process of the U.S. insular empire occurred at exactly the same time as the British and French empires. So to my, there are differences we can come to, to my third phase, and we're getting towards my final finally now, which I have called, again, unoriginally post-colonial globalization from 1950 to the present. And what I argue there uh, is that the, after this, in this period, not appearing immediately, but developing right through the second half of the 20th century, there was a transformative shift in the character of globalization. World opinion, civil rights, a new form of world morality which embraced not just civil rights but human rights, a wider sense of entitlement to health and education and welfare broadly, an assault on concepts of no racial supremacy. New institutions, new international institutions, the United Nations and its many affiliates, which were advertising and increasingly to poli policing this new morality. There was also what uh, historians of decolonization refer to as a green uprising, not a green revolution, that's wheat and India, but a green uprising, which is that point in the anti-colonial movements where a more restrained, elitist, urban sense of opposition gives way to the incorporation of the peasantry, of the farmers, and indeed of the urban workers into political movements. Uh, if I had time, I would have pointed out that this actually is the shift from Adams to Jackson in the 1820s in that decolonizing phase, which then came up again in the 20th century elsewhere. And that was taking place throughout the colonial uh, period, propelled by expanded means of communication, uh, motor transport, radios, etc. And finally, uh, finally, yes, I better, not, I better use my last finally now, otherwise I will deceive you even more than I've tried to do so far. There were changes in the world economy. This fundamental. The old links between sending manufacturers for raw materials began to weaken. And if you look at the world increasing in the late 20th century, it's a world of inter-industry trade. That is, that's why you exchange parts with China and so on and so on. The big already developed economies trade among themselves. And then the other important change was the outsourcing, so to speak, of manufacturing. Today, Asia uh, accounts for something like 25% uh, of the world trade in manufacturing. This is a major uh, alteration. And out of that too, you have new regional blocks, no longer a center and a periphery, but regional blocks which may run from north-south, as in the case of NAFTA, or in the case of New Zealand and Japan and China. And these are conditions, I think, which justify a major change in the nature of globalization. And of course, it's the change in the nature of globalization that provides the real entry into an understanding of decolonization after World War II. I say a real entry because if you treat it in that way, you can do things which are not done so far. 
You can include China as a semi-colony. The 1949 revolution, for instance, can be thought of as a colonial nationalist revolution. So you can have a much broader picture of decolonization and redefine the subject so it's not just a question of what happened to formal empires in Asia and in Africa. And if you look at the period of decolonization, uh, historians of decolonization have, shift, have divided it approximately into two phases. From about 45 to 55, there was a period, uh, there was a phase of holding on. The, the Western powers had not fought the war to give up empires, but rather to revive them. And when nationalism became difficult, uh, violent even, protests turned into violence and so on, the nationalists were put down right the way through to Kenya, Mau Mau, Malayan emergency, the Huck rebellion in Philippines, which nobody really knows about, a major rebellion over 10 years and so on, which required a big US input to put down. The same sequence of things. And then from about 1955 onwards, a phase of working with the nationalists instead of against the nationalists as the changes that I've outlined began to work their way through into policy as the costs of holding an empire against its will made themselves felt and as Europe Western interests themselves shifted away uh, from the need to hold on to empire as well as from the impossibility of doing so. And here is a final puzzle. That's my fourth finally, but it's the final, final, finally. Just as the US was becoming a decolonizing power, that is to say, giving up what I'm terming its territorial empire, the boot you can put your feet on and walk all around and, and integrate, this is the moment when commentators start calling it an empire. Are we the new Rome? And all these books that we had after 2003 coming to the fore. But this is a misnomer if you accept, and you may not, my definition of an empire as being essentially one of territorial in, uh, uh, integration. Of course, the US wielded huge power after 1945, and especially in the period where most scholars would agree it was at its peak, if that's the right word, when Europe and Japan were flat on their backs and so on, the early period uh, through to the early 70s. But it was not an empire of a kind that justifies comparison with the empires I've been describing. It's, I don't have a good term for it, so I have probably mistakenly borrowed from the very ambiguous term which IR specialists use, hegemon and hegemony. It's ambiguous because you don't know whether that just means leadership of a soft kind or whether it means putting the boot in. And in my view, that even during this period, as a hegemon, the US had limits to its power uh, which are not readily recognized. And you'll be happy to know I won't discuss that now. And this was certainly the case even when Europe and Japan were flattened, and it became more so uh, during the 1990s when the unipolar moment was said to have arrived and all things were in the grasp of men of action and imperfect vision. Rarely has nemesis followed hubris so swiftly or decisively. 
Yet hegemons are reluctant to abandon their illusions. Aspirations become more precious as the prospect of attaining them recedes. In this matter, as in so many others since the 18th century, the US and the UK continue to move in complementary fashion. Making America great again is echoed in Brexit. Yet the age of great empires has passed, which shows that the nostalgia for hegemony is in reality evidence of the hegemony of nostalgia. Thank <laughs> you.